What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, we're going to talk about the legacy of the peculiar institution of chattel slavery that gave birth to this country's economic engine of race-based capitalism and all of the then-lived brutality for Black folks who past and present suffer the reality of its birth, implementation, and maintenance. We're joined today by Sadia Hartman, who has re-released her book, Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in 19th Century America, 25 years after it was first published. Ms. Hartman is also the author of Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiences, and Lose Your Mother. A MacArthur Fellow, she has been a Guggenheim Fellow, Coleman Fellow, and Fulbright Scholar. She's a university professor at Columbia University and lives in New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I want to start a bit with the personal. I'm always interested at the varying roads that Black folks who commit their lives to liberation of our people take to get there. Some of us organize, some become culture workers, some enter the world of academia, a place none too friendly to Black folks very often. What led you down the academia road? And um, I think what led me down the research road and um, becoming an academic was second, secondary to that. Um, it was really my great-grandfather telling me stories about the enslavement of our family and the loss of family land um, after slavery and in the context of freedom. So my great-grandfather would take me on these trips through the countryside of Alabama, and he would you know, tell me about his mother and his grandmother and the experience of slavery, and then the land, um, you know, his father had acquired, and the loss of that land because of white supremacy and racial terror, and that's really what, you know, ignited my research interests. So, I entered graduate school not with any notion that I was going to become an academic, but just so I could have support to continue researching and reading and writing. I have a follow-up question to that, which is maybe a little projection on my part. So my family, my granny, came from Monroe, Louisiana, which is a teeny tiny town um, in in that state, and fled, um, you know, the horrors of, of being in the South at that time. And so I, I grew up with the stories, but not place-based, right? Like we weren't traveling through the South and she was telling us these stories. Um, it was, you know, on her couch or porch or before bed. Um, not necessarily a great bedtime story, but you know. Um, but I grew up like with this terror uh, of the South because of the way that my granny spoke about it. And I wonder if you had any of that and if some of grappling, if so, if grappling with some of that, like there was power in understanding it. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, that, that's a great question because, you know, recently I was at this conference at the Mississippi Museum of Art and many of the stories um, that artists, you know, were telling the Astra Gates, Carrie Mae Weems was, was a story like yours. Like, when their family left Mississippi to land in Chicago or from Arkansas to Oregon. And, you know, on my father's side there, you know, we're immigrants, Caribbean immigrants, right? But on my mother's family, people actually stayed 
in the South, um, we didn't, you know, the family did not migrate North. My mother and her brothers, they went to historically Black colleges. So I think that um, they didn't migrate um, because of the enormous force of white supremacy and racial terror. So I think when I entered that landscape as a child, um, you know, it was a different time, but I was also really shielded by my grandparents and by my great grandfather. And my great grandfather was, you know, this mythic and heroic figure for me, Moses Thomas. You know, he was six foot two. He was like in great health in his like eighties. He walked miles every day. And so I wasn't really um, aware of like the fear component of that. Even as my grandfather was, you know, my great grandfather was telling me those stories, um, somehow I wasn't, you know, made to feel afraid. Maybe it was because he didn't transmit the fear. And I think that there there is the difference between those who left and those who stayed. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I realized how in in a certain way, the uniqueness of, oh, having a family on my mother's side that didn't migrate from the South. I mean, when she married my father, she moved to New York, which is where I grew up. So she left that world, but not as, um, you know, a tra- traditional migrant from the South, but because she was engaged to and married, you know, eventually married someone who lived in New York. In addition to author and and professor and academic, uh, you also hold the professional role uh, of an archivist and focus on slavery in the United States, critical of the way that history has been written. Uh, People who don't have access to literacy can't write history, so narratives of the actual daily lives of folks who are enslaved are far and few between. Um, There's a a few, few, a couple, Uh, solid books on that collections. What is it like as an archivist to to fill in those gaps? Yeah, I mean, it is is a very intense intellectual and emotional engagement. Um, I mean, one, you're right to note that, you know, Black people often appear in these archives as they are subjected to enormous violence um, or they are subjected to punishment, which is why there's a legal record or they are um, being sold. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I attempted to do um, in, you know, scenes of subjection, um, even as I was working with, um, these archives, and even as I was working with, you know, the testimony of enslaved people and their children that had often been collected by the children of, you know, the very families that had owned them, really trying to read against the grain so that other stories of the experience um, could be written. And often, even despite that, you know, um, condescending frame, 
even, you know, despite the relations of power and inequality that are shaping the interviews, enslaved, formerly enslaved people and their descendants spoke critically about the institution and its violence. They spoke to the hypocrisy of a democratic order built on their subjection, built on um, you know their brutalization, built on their objectification, um, built upon the commodification of their lives. And those were the things um, that I was reading for. So I was immersed in the archive, but also reading against its many of its normative assumptions. And um, I could do that because I also I came to that with this training, right? I came to that with this understanding of a family history. I came to that with the understanding of my great grandfather's stories. Um, and before I, you know, had the notion of an afterlife of slavery, my great grandfather was talking about, um, you know, the duration of what it meant to be a slave, thinking about literal enslavement and thinking about dispossession and economic precarity and how those things were connected. I mean, he would say to be landless is to be a slave because to be landless in the rural South means that one is forced into the violence of capitalist wage labor as, you know, the cropping system or as a domestic. So I, I had that frame and I'm really, you know, um, I'm really fortunate in that I had this other compass with me as I was engaging the archive of slavery. What, what, I have a couple of follow-up questions and, and a comment. I, I just want to sort of punctuate uh, something that you do as well, and that, that that to be landless meant exactly as your grandfather said, you're still a slave because in order to feed your family, and I, I almost want to put that in air quotes, you were just right back to working white folks' land, yeah? Right, right, ex- exactly, or cleaning their houses and... That was to, um, you know, be in a position of utter subordination. I think um, also it's important, you know, when we think about, you know, um, Jim Crow or racial segregation in the South. Um, and in fact, there's a new book Margaret Burnham has written called By Hands Now Known. And what that book does is it just kind of documents how essential these forms of direct and primary violence and racial terror were to maintaining segregation as a social order. And, you know, it was a project that the nation at large supported. It wasn't just restricted to the South. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we're, we're thinking about um, the violence that's required to, you know, to produce a working class and violence has been required everywhere in the world. People have to be dispossessed, right? Um, uh, All means of subsistence outside of wage labor need to be foreclosed. And we certainly saw that in the South, um, in the wake of emancipation, the way forests were closed, hunting hunting and fishing were outlawed. Why were they outlawed? So that, you know, 
um, black working class folks, black peasants could, you know, so that they wouldn't be able to survive um, and feed their families by like hunting and fishing and foraging the kinds of things that they um, were able to do, right? So those forms of activity were now criminalized. You've used the word violence. I've used the word violence since we started talking. And, uh, you know, and in, in, in reading your book and in prepping for this interview, right, and being transported back to being a freshman in college and really learning about chattel slavery in a much different way than the two paragraphs that were in the history books in my, my high school <clears throat> and the emotional shock to the system um, being 18, right, and digesting information, and it just feels like violence is such a, a mellow word mm-hmm. for the reality of, I think, I think the right word is terror, for the yeah. literal day in, day out terror uh, of, of that time for, for our ancestors. And language matters, yeah? Language totally matters, which is also why I, I hate a word like Jim Crow, when, um, because it, more. It gives, you know, it, because it's, you know, we know that that comes from like a minstrel song, right? That, and what we were living under was like an apartheid legal order, right? But there's a way that, um, the way the, the violence and the terror that has been essential to the foundation of this country when we think about, um, settler colonialism and racial slavery, that, violence and terror is also disappeared through through language and through a conceptual framing like i mean even a notion of a peculiar institution um it's what because what um slavery is peculiar what inside a democratic order Mm. no not inside a white settler republic it's foundational <laughs> it's not peculiar it's mm-hmm. foundational in fact mm-hmm. but what we know um you know from the 1619 project and the rabbit response you know to it is that there is a reluctance to deal um you know with the history of this nation and, um, you know, it's, it's origins that in the Constitution, even, you know, before there was, you know, something like a Fugitive Slave Act was passed, there was a provision, um, you know, for the return of property that was basically a kind of an interstate fugitive slave law. So I think that um, there's been a lot of... Um, intellectual and ideological work that has been done to to mask that and to also to kind of naturalize these relations of, you know, brutal domination. So we have these kind of, you know, in many ways, the way in which people um, have been led to think about slavery or the way it has um, been written about even you know overwhelmingly in the historical scholarship has been from the perspective of the slaveholding class right and uh, and I think that you know that there have always been like you know radical black historians who have challenged that perspective but it took a massive amount of historical labor 
to um, to dislodge it and really to come to terms with um, violence. I mean, slavery was described as a paternalistic institution. Right. Family. We're family. Right. Right. I mean, so all these things are, um, they're not only, you know, mystifications, but they're, you know, fundamental ways of disavowing, um, you know, the extreme domination, the violence, the natal alienation that fundamentally defines um, the institution of slavery. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with Sadia Hartman about the re-release of her book, Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in 19th Century America. And your answer there, uh, your last answer there, Ms. Hartman, actually sort of makes me jump ahead to um, something I wanted to explore a little bit later in the interview, but I think now makes more sense, which is this idea of the recasting of history, um, not just then, but well, then it was like the recasting of the current frame, right? And as we right. move forward in the years now, it's the recasting of what it actually um, was and is, right? Uh, the the lie that that we live in a democracy. Um, my daughter got kicked out of class for challenging her history teacher on that that concept. I, I want to. Sp- I want you to spend a little bit of time talking about why for America. Right. Like in my head, holding on to the, the narrative that they've created is critical to maintain themselves the dominant superpower across all of the, li- the, the, the lines um, in, the, in, in the world. Right. Because if they were to ever actually admit the inhumanity of past and present treatment of black folks, indigenous folks, brown folks, makes it really hard to be a moral authority and use that moral authority to invade and colonize, dominate other countries. Yes. Um, I mean, and we, and we know for a fact, um, certainly this was an issue in terms of, you know, the Cold War period and the way in which the effort to integrate, you know, um, uh, the U.S. to kind of dismantle segregation had everything to do with the U.S. fear of not being able to maintain any kind of moral leadership in a context of decolonization, right? So um, there's a, a great story about these state officials, you know, going to Kwame Nkrumah's inauguration in Ghana and seeing these Black men and saying, oh, you know, congratulations, you're free, you're free. And they're like, um, no, mm. we're from the U.S. We're not free. <laughs> so mm. I think that um, you're right. That's then like, what does it mean that, um, you know, what is, you know, and I think it's changed now because I think that there's a way uh, that there's more of um, a global recognition and deep understanding about the U.S., um, as an imperiled or broken order. And I think that Fort, you know, President 45 just made that, you know, really, really clear. Um, just the, you know, the attempted coup, uh, the, the fake news, um, the kind of divided 
nation, the kind of, you know, white supremacist, pro-fascist, pro-Nazi emergent, you know, populism, all these things um, are apparent, the, the handling of the kind of of the COVID crisis, the fact that more people died in the U.S. of COVID than in any other developed nation. Um, so, you know, I think the question is, oh, is there a relationship between these histories of racial slavery and settler colonialism and our now? And I would say, um, you know, I would say yes. And I, I think... Um, that one of the things that I tried to do in scenes was um, was to kind of you know shift our understanding and thinking you know that oh it's not as if you know the brutality of slavery was the result of um, you know the action of a particularly cruel slaveholder. No, it is a system that is constructed as violence and brutality. Every dimension of it, even those dimensions that you would think are ameliorative, like the recognition of slave humanity um, in the law. And I mean, even in, in a work, you know, Lose Your Mother, I, you know, was writing about the slave ship and the slave dungeons and these were these you know incredibly um foul environments um they were humiliating they were filled with you know fecal matter and blood and i can remember when the light went off and i was like oh that's not an accident <laughs> that's not a byproduct like that's actually part of the plan right the, and so to really um, to work with the description of what we know about, you know, the conditions of the hold or the fact that, you know, um, in terms of like the domestic trade that, you know, children had a 50% chance of being sold away from their families because the internal slave trade was so profitable in the U.S. And then building a description out from, from those facts, right? So that means that, oh, there's nothing, um, you know, paternal about that. That means that, again, that separation from family and kin is a constitutive aspect of slavery. The harnessing um, of Black women's reproductive capacity in the production of future commodities that is, um, you know, a motor, an instrument of reproducing the order. Um, so working from that to build a critical picture, I think that, you know, thinking about a text like, you know, um, you know, like the Capital as a kind of analogy, it's like, what is the relationship of capital and labor? It's one of exploitation. It doesn't depend on the intentions or the goodwill of the employer. It's a structural relationship. And so I really worked to articulate um, the structural relation of slavery. 
You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Sadia Hartman about the re-release of her book, Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in 19th Century America. Um, Ms. Hartman, the book is about slavery and its evolution and its legacy. When opening a book about slavery, I mean, I, 20 plus years into being a, a student of our, our history and movement, right? When, some, when one sits down to open that, uh, a book about chattel slavery, we expect, we brace ourselves, if you will, to be confronted with, you know, the, the horrific images, stories, accounts of what life on plantations was like. You make a bit of a point of not focusing there. Why? I mean, I, um, right from the very first page of the introduction of scenes, when um, I, you know, repress Frederick Douglass's description of his Aunt Hester being um, brutally beaten, I think I chose not to focus on these scenes of spectacular and intense violence. Um, because I think that the violence of, that it was more, um, you know, I mean, I think we can, everyone can see a scene like that and think, ah, cruelty, cruelty. Yet, you know, when um, thinking about just the kind of the everyday quotidian experience of slavery, people, many people don't think, oh my God, this is um, an institution of extreme domination founded on violence and terror. So I wanted to go to those seemingly benign scenes to say, oh, terror is as present here as it is at the whipping post, right? It's as present here as it is at the whipping post. I I also think that there was a question of um, the relationship to those scenes of violence and the way in which the circulation of these scenes of Black suffering and death um, often don't have the kind of intended um, effect that people would want, oh, that, that, you know, their circulation will, in fact, um, incite, you know, incredible opposition to the institution because there's also, you know, this um, really a kind of pornographic investment in Black suffering and Black death. And that's something that I had to contend with, even um, when looking at, you know, the 18th and 19th century archive. When, when you look at paintings, when you're reading texts, there's this um, libidinal investment in Black pain. You know, we might think about that in relation to the circulation of, you know, scenes of, you know, Black death on social media. Like, do the circulation of those images actually um, prevent, thwart other forms of state-sanctioned murder? Or are they really kind of, you know, um, triggers to vulnerable populations and what is it that they um, what is it that they offer to white viewers? What do they offer to the white gaze? And um, so that was another reason why I chose um, not to replicate um, 
that way into thinking about slavery's terror. Um, there's a really wonderful, unwieldy, anti-slavery uh, polemic written by an enslaved African in the 18th century, Otaba Kuguano's um, thoughts and sentiments on the evil and wicked you know, trade and slaves. And in that document, Kuguano says, you know, he will not describe the extreme degradation of the slavehold or of slavery because he says it is already too late for such descriptions to make a difference, you know? And I think that what he makes is an intellectual case for the abolition of slavery instead. But no, I'm not going to, you know, document the need um, to end the institution with these, you know, graphic accounts of Black suffering and Black death. And what we do know is that, you know, 19th century readers, you know, read slave narratives as if they were adventure tales, fugitive narratives, you know, like, how am I going to get from the South to the North, the atrocities? I mean, in their context, they were a kind of, you know, often titillating social entertainment, even though that is not why, you know, um, enslaved narrators, you know, wrote them or dictated them. But it's about this unethical and voyeuristic relationship to Black suffering. Um, and I was determined not to replicate that. I want to stay there for a minute and, and but bring it into modern day because there's, you know, similar arguments made, um, as you referenced briefly in your answer that, you know, the, the fact that we can watch black people almost every day be murdered on social media, um, what purpose does that serve? And there is one school of thought, right, that that's, and I have, right, I've heard white folks that have entered my organization and said, I didn't know until I saw every day a different body. Um, and, and that, and that, I that would helped say, with the expansion of the movement. Yeah, and I would say it, that is so, um, really, really, that there is such um, a lack of awareness about the history of one of the most kind of like racialized um, orders, you know, um, that it requires the vision of Black death for you to be made aware of the forms of state violence to which Black communities are subjected. And I would say, you know, I mean, to me, that's about disavowal and that is about what Baldwin would describe as, you know, the investment in white innocence and how high the cost of that innocence is for everyone else. Um, so, I mean, we live in, you know, an incredibly, you know, segregated order that's built on, you know, black dispossession and domination. I mean, that's a fact. So why does one need, um, why does one need that picture? And rather than, um, 
I don't know. I just find, and, and I think that that is often the response. And then it's like, oh, so black, so that the circulation of these scenes of black death are a necessary part of white anti-racist pedagogy. Is that, is that the requirement? Some white folks love to say uh, slavery ended, you know, such a long time ago, get over it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Talk about both the political and social context, starting with so-called emancipation that actually worsened or evolved the nightmare of being black in this country and solidified our place in the caste system of America as second-class citizens. Yes, I mean, what it meant, and this is something that I think that, you know, uh, former slaves actually speak eloquently too, what does it mean um, to be free with no resources at all in the world, right? So there was, you know, a vision, um, there was a, a, the promise, you know, um, from, you know, Sh Sherman's Field Order 15 about the redistribution of Confederate lands um, so that, you um, you know, blacks would have acreage that they could farm and that they could, you know, um, work and produce. And that never happened. So what you have is you, you never um, have um, a transformation in the kind of, in the economic relations, right? You have an abolition of legal property in slaves without having the kind of the transformation um, that would um, enable black people to, you know, maintain um, autonomy that would enable them to thrive. So basically they are forced to return um, to the plantation order, but, um, in the context of debt peonage and sharecropping, so that a different kind, a different kind of involuntary servitude is the successor to slavery, right? And I think that this uh, has everything to do with oh, what what do we understand the Thirteenth Amendment to do? Is it just about abolishing a legal relationship? Or is it about abolishing all the badges and indices of slavery, right? Um, much of the work, of the legal work um, that unfolded in the wake of, um, you know, the legal abolition of slavery was remaking the racial order by other means, right? So that we have... Um, initially a system of, you know, black codes, but other kind of statutes introduced in a range of Southern constitutions, which state constitutions, which reproduces the racial order. And then with, um, you know, cases like U.S. versus Cruikshank or Plessy versus Ferguson, what we have is, you know, the federal government taking, deciding, oh, that they're not going to intervene in the forms of terror um, that these, you know, recently freed Black people are being subjected to, and Plessy recreating um, a white over Black dynamic 
but now within a new legal framework of equality, right? Um, So that we can still have, you know, a racialized order of hierarchy and dominance, but that's not at odds with equality. Under slavery, there was no need to pretend it was equality. In the in the legal um, after the legal abolition of slavery, one needs pretend it. Um, what we see is that many of the um, you know many aspects of the legal framework of slavery being incorporated into um, the legal architecture that emerges in its aftermath. So that basically, you know, things like every white person and, you know, embodies the power of the police, that black people can be killed and murdered with utter impunity, that forms of direct violence and terror are a feature of everyday life, that there is a concerted effort to control and to prevent black movement off the plantation, that um, there is no right not to work. So if you are not employed or if you have not signed a contract, um, you know, to work, then you can be arrested and basically forced to work. So on the one hand, slavery ends, but this new um, apparatus emerges in its wake that's producing a range of forms of involuntary servitude um, from cropping to debt peonage to the carceral apparatus, right? So um, I think that when we, when we look at the kind of the economic and political dimensions and, you know, the utter disenfranchisement of Black folks basically until the 60s, right? Until the the civil rights movement. So there were, you know, rights that were won with the kind of the 14th and 15th Amendment, but without a federal state to secure those rights, they mean nothing. And they did mean nothing. So that Black people who were helping to organize um, other Blacks to try to vote were murdered, right? Uh, We have, um, you know, uh, it's the subject of what what is the the town in um, Wilmington, Um, you know, a a white supremacist coup that uh, ultimately deposes, you know, a democratically elected interracial um, Republican, um, you know, governance. So around the country, we have a series of massacres that ultimately thwart and undermine the agenda of reconstruction. And and terrorize folks, right, to go and ter- and back into absolutely their, right. Absolutely terrorize folks. And then in organizing against those forms of terror, folks are also murdered. I mean, we think of like, you know, someone like Ida B. Wells, um, you know, talking about, you know, her friends who are lynched. Why were they lynched? Because they had a successful grocery business. And so uh, in every respect, there was an attempt 
to thwart and contain um, Black life. And again, um, violence and terror are the central modalities in, you know, by hands now known. I mean, Margaret Burnham documents just the, you know, um, a Black woman, Ali Hunter, is in a grocery store and she picks up a can of oil and the 20-year-old white clerk White male clerk tells her to put it down. She puts it down. She walks out of the store and he beats her to death with an ax handle. I mean, that is that is the history of our country, right? And, and when and you s- gave that example, Ms. Hartman, I went right to Buffalo, New York, where our grannies were grocery shopping. Yeah. And a 20-year-old, I mean, it, what, 18, 19, whatever the hell yeah. it was, executed them for... For being. For being. For being. And um, so, yeah, so I just think that to say that, you know, white anti-racist education requires the spectacle of Black death to become aware, (laughs) that's like another blow with the axe handle. Fair enough. That's fair. I'm I'm going to... I guess I see both end, but I'm, I'm going to sit with, um, you've introduced a bunch of new ways of, for me to, to analyze both past and, and its impact on, on current that I think are, are super critical for any of us that are engaged in liberatory struggle right now. So, Dia Harmon, I want to talk a little bit about freedom. You, you talk a lot about freedom in the book and what is possible in our social context when you think of freedom. What do you think about? How do you define the, that concept? And given the real life social and political constraints for Black folks in this country, can it exist? My 17-year-old would argue no. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think under this set of arrangements, um, the answer is no. Um, I think that what, uh, what a movement can make possible is a radically different set of arrangements, but oh, um, can you know black freedom be possible in the context of um, you know a predatory capitalist order which depends upon um, ways of constantly extracting value from black lives and communities? No. And this is why I think a, a, a kind of structural or systemic analysis is in fact required. Um, I think that, um, you know, what amazes me and why I'm still, you know, why I feel committed to a term like freedom is that for so long it has um, animated, you know, radical Black movements And I think that um, even within circumstances um, which made it impossible, seemingly impossible to believe that freedom, that a release from slavery um, or that an end of slavery would ever come, people, you know, believed that it would. And I think that, you know, our, you know, freedom dreams are really important. We know when um, the Civil War began, Lincoln's only concern was 
reunification of the nation, right? Of, you know, getting the kind of warring Confederate states to put down their arms. For the enslaved, the goal of the Civil War was Black freedom, right? And with that vision, they also, they made it so. They, they left the plantation. Hundreds of thousands of people left the plantation, um, you know, in advance of and after the Emancipation you know, Proclamation. And that sense, um, fighting in the Civil War, all, there were these, you know, really important, you know, openings uh, that were created by Black movement and belief and action. And I think that that's the thing um, that I want to think about and focus on, you know, is the kind of transformation um, that is actually so of a way of existing on the planet and existing with one another that is so far beyond what I can even imagine now. I don't even have the language for what it would mean to live in a way that isn't about, um, you know, racial capitalism and the destruction of the planet and, um, you know, a notion of um, being an integrity that's also predicated on being um, better than someone else and having someone under your foot. And that's what largely the order that we're living in. Yeah, and I think that's why, I mean, you do hear a lot of, you know, organizers today, uh, Black organizers um, dedicated to liberation of our folks, really engaging that question, right? Can that happen on this soil? Um, And I think for a lot of folks, the answer is no. No, I, I don't know that there's a lot of answers to what that is. We see some people... Uh, going back to the continent, but it, it is definitely something that we're trying to grapple with um, in in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think that you know we're um, in a global order, and there's a kind of uh, a tendency to, you know, to the right to fascism, you know, in many quarters of the globe. So I think that you know. Um, I don't know that it's about like, you know, running away to someplace that's outside right. this order. If it exists, you know, but please gosh, tell that me. sounds good. Sometimes, listen, I, I hear you. And sometimes I'm, that's the fantasy that lets me wake up the next day. You know, and, um, but I think that, you know, I think partly um, that one does the, the work, you know, the commitment um, uh, of, trying to create um, trying to create another way of living um, even as there are no guarantees um, that that will be possible. I mean, it's like, you know, so yeah, so we're at a really um, interesting and perilous moment. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I guess part of the reason like my work is historical is because I really 
look at what has happened to try to understand, um, you know, the moment that we that we're in and and where we're heading. Um, it uh, we're already in, you know, um, a pretty dystopian situation. Yes. So what is one way to put it in it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what's required to, um, I think, you know, much is demanded from all of us to try to, um, to try to make, you know, to try to make change. But I think that, you know, people are doing that in a range of um, ways uh, that are small, that are local, um, and that are significant. I mean, I think that you were talking about young organizers. I think of all of these like young, um, you know. And older organizers. I I feel like we we forget that some of the, you know, we got folks been doing this for a hot minute that whose evolution of analysis, right, like is so crucial as well as to the fire, energy, and passion of, of our brilliant youth. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, specifically about like farming, and mm-hmm. all of these, um, so just really the way in which issues of survival and sustenance. But right again, it's not a new idea. I mean, you know, Fanny Hamer and people in the, you know, Freedom Democratic Party. I mean, they wanted to create a black land trust. So it's, um, and I think it's, you know, those ways of thinking um, outside of the box of the given, um, you know, that may be, that, that may enable us to um, do more than inflict less damage on the planet. <laughs> Great. Well, Miss um, Celia Hartman, this will be my final question for you, at least for today. I've got like 30 other questions on this sheet that we just don't have the time to get to. Uh, but the the mission of this show, you know, I'm an organizer um, and what we wanted to, to use this platform of media to inform and build movement, right? So the, the mission is to expose, agitate and build. And so my final question for you is, um, right, understanding that historical context and the ways it plays out in the present is crucial for adequately devising, organizing and liberation strategies today. How do we get the genius of your analysis or the genius of, you know, Kianga, um, Kianga Yamada Taylor, who wrote the foreword for the re-release, which is quite brilliant and everybody needs to read. How, how do we get that genius out of academia and into the hands of organizers and the masses, right, what the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense would have called the lumpen, the most impacted by the lingering legacy of slavery and the Buddha state terror? Yes. Um I mean, I feel that many um, people in the movement are um, precisely making that happen. I mean, uh, there's so many syllabi that have been created, right? Um, There's a dissemination of articles. I mean, I I love the creation of pamphlets. Um, there is, you know, um, you know, people creating freedom schools. So I think that I agree with you that 
you know, there has to be um, this knowledge needs to flow um, in multiple directions. And I think, you know, reading and study groups, right? I mean, I know. Yes. Um, so, so that's also, you know, important, but I know there, there are a number of like, uh, people who are creating, you know, black feminist summer schools, other forms of summer school, black study groups where, you know, we get together, we read collectively and, you know, I would be, um, happy to, you know, to facilitate, you know, that in the ways that I can. I mean, one of the things about being in a university is trying to open up the resources of the university to others. So it's not like, you know, um, and often universities feel like these very closed off, guarded structures where only certain people are supposed to um, enter. But I think that there are many, um, many, many Black writers and intellectuals who would love to see, um, you know, a larger, uh, you know, distribution of the work. I know many writers, you know, send books to schools, to prisons, etc. So I hope we can kind of, you know, think of more ways to do that. And I'm also welcome, you know, to organizers just sending me an email and saying, Professor Hartman, this is what you can do. Right. I think the only thing that I would add to that before we close are, are, are the artists and the cultural workers, right? So the one of the drums I've been beating is like, as we talk about reimagining public safety, for instance, air quotes, um, it's the artists who help us, right, see things differently in the, in the paintings, in the songs, in the, in the theater, um, and, and that connection between the scholars, the organizers, and the cultural workers, I think is a critical sort of wheel that, that we could oil just a little bit better. Um, Ms. Hartman, I want to thank you so much for this conversation and for your work and for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We've been in conversation with Sadia Hartman, whose 1997 book, Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in 19th Century America has just been reissued with a fascinating uh, forward by Kianga Yamada-Taylor um, on its 25th anniversary. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask in the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.